Continuing our discussion of eschatology, last thing. So now that we kind of got past the timeline, we're talking about the ultimate destinations. So what we're going to do is we have two sections here. We're going to, we have hell and then heaven. So we're going to end on a high note. Okay, so next week we're going to be talking about heaven. That means this week we're going to talk about what? Hell. hell. Right. And, and we referenced this a little bit last week, but um, the doctrine of hell is a super important doctrine. I mean, what happens to the Christian faith if you strip away hell? What do you think? If you strip away hell, how does that adjust what we do, what we believe? What's the punishment for sin? Yeah, what's the punishment for sin? There's no reason for Christ to have come. Yeah, there's no reason for Christ to have come. Eric? Uh, reduces the fear of God. Uh-huh. Sin is finished. We're going to say something, Abe? Yeah, and you even look at, like, evangelism in general. Like, why share your, your faith, right? So with that in place, why is hell such a difficult um, topic to discuss? We all know people who are going there. Mm-hmm. <coughs> yeah, Josh? Because it, it brings it lies of judgment. It's hard to talk about judgment. It's hard to receive words of judgment. Mm-hmm. It's also just too overwhelmingly horrible to yeah. talk about. Yeah. The Bible suggests. just teach love. So we said love in God, but they can't see that there's, he's also a God of wrath and judgment. Yeah. That's a good point. The okay. Bible states that the gate is broad and for those going there, yeah. instead of narrow, which is the contradiction, to yeah. the, or which is the path to righteousness in the kingdom of God. So uh-huh. he's not only saying that people will go there, he's saying many more will go there. Yeah, many will go there. Broad is the path that leads to destruction, narrow is the road that leads to life. Right? Yeah. Yeah, other thoughts about why it's such a difficult topic to consider? Yes? I think historically, and I, even in my own life, it's, mm-hmm. it's been something, maybe um, news, a, a message that's been shared intertwined with a lot of self-righteousness. Okay. Um, and so I, I think um, it, with a history of it, people talk, talking maybe it being talked about in an unbiblical way uh-huh. and with ungodly <coughs> attitudes. Yeah. Um, we, sometimes when we share that news with mm-hmm. someone, we're sharing mm-hmm. it with someone who's heard it in a way that's actually been, um, it's been wrong. Okay. And so they're, yeah, we're sharing it within that context. Okay. The fire-breathing fundamentalist, right, that type of thing. We, we don't want that kind of association. Right. Okay. Other reasons why it might be difficult to talk about? Also, also I think we don't understand a lot about it. Uh huh. Either, either because we haven't studied it well, mm-hmm. or because the Bible doesn't share like there are bits bits about it in Scripture that are just kind of confusing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it. It is. Um, it is a defining doctrine. You know, what you believe about hell really defines what kind of Christian you are. And I think you're right. Sometimes we're, you know, you look at the fire-breathing fundamentalist preacher, and we always, we want to distance ourselves from Fred Phelps. But then you kind of have the other side, that unless you have tears in your eyes every time you talk about it, you know, you can't talk about it. Right, so there's, a, it's, it's one of those topics that I think a lot of people are just kind of afraid to touch and dig into because, it's tormenting to talk about torment and and even hell being a real issue it's uh, it changes everything like I remember um, when I was you know and this is one of the reasons why this is a very personal topic for me is I remember telling my dad with tears in my eyes that dad my greatest fear in life is that one day I'll get a phone call from mom 
that you're dead and I'll know you're in hell. And so fast forward, um, I grew up in a, I'll just say it, a Methodist church. And um, it was back when uh, my family lived in Idaho. Now we moved all around, you know, since then. So it was my elementary school church. We ended up moving to Chicago, then to Kansas. I became a Christian at the University of Kansas. My parents moved back to Idaho. And my childhood pastor moved back to the area as the Bishop of Idaho. And so he was the, um, you know, basically the, the pastor of the uh, establishment church in Idaho. It's the Cathedral of the Rockies, a beautiful building. It's where the governor went to church. It was that kind of church. And he wanted to have a conversation with me because apparently my dad talked to him after I had that conversation. And so we went out and uh, we had uh, lunch together. And this was when I was a young Christian and I didn't quite understand the different veins of Christianity. And so we got into a conversation and I assumed that he shared my burden for my dad because like when I say my dad wasn't a Christian, it wasn't me being judgmental. Like at the time, he's become a Christian since, so it does have a happy ending. But uh, he told, you know, my dad did not believe in the resurrection, right? And I don't think I'm being judgmental to say that if you don't believe in the resurrection, it's impossible to become a, you know, to be a Christian. And so what he told me was that my dad talked to him about it. And he reassured my dad by saying, Marv, God has enough grace for everyone, even you. And I just thought, well, you know, Steve, he doesn't believe in the resurrection. And then he went on this little preachy sermon about how God has enough grace for everyone. And that at the end of time, everyone will get a chance to see the glorified Christ. And no one is going to tell him no. He basically taught universalism. So I'm 21 years old, sitting across from the bishop of the state of Idaho, and I went after him and I called him a heretic. <laughs> and we had a four-hour intense back-and-forth discussion. And um, so ever since then, you know, that was when I was kind of exposed to that, because what you believe about that really matters, right? So on one hand, if he's right and I'm wrong, what happens? I feel bad for people feeling unnecessary guilt. But if he's right, or if I'm right and he's wrong, what happens, right? So what you believe about hell? I mean, it is a matter of more than life and death, right? What you believe about hell fuels everything we believe about evangelism, reaching the lost and all that. So that's why, for me, the study of hell um, has always been kind of like a, a special burden for me because I see how it could have misled my dad, right? And fortunately, you know, how, as, how the story goes is, you know, Steve and I would always get into these arguments back, he'd tell my dad one thing, I'd tell my dad another thing, and finally my dad said, you know what, I'm gonna just study the Bible and just see who's right for myself. I'm like, good, <laughs> right? <laughs> you do that, right? So he's changed his mind and now, now he understands. So all that to say, um, you know, what you believe about hell is, is, is super, super important. It is a matter of life and death. So I want to talk about just kind of four views of hell. We're going to start with the umbilical views first. The first one is universalism. Okay? This is the belief that in the fullness of time all souls will be released from the penalties of sin and restored to God. Simply put, everyone will be saved. Supporters of this position include J.A.T. Robinson and John Hick. Many will be surprised to find out that this is the most popular position among clergy in all of Christendom. So what's the appeal of this view? What do you think? Universalism, what's the appeal? No consequences. No consequences, yeah. <coughs> yeah, everyone will be saved, right? Why would people be attracted to this view? Everybody likes having their cake and eating it too. Okay, want to flesh that out a little bit? Yeah, there's um, <coughs> no consequence for what I do. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be safe. Okay. Not a problem. Okay. I, I like this. There's there's no, like you said, no judgment. Mm -hmm. That's appealing because then I don't have to worry. Mm -hmm. I'm okay. not anxious about what I'm doing and mm -hmm. I don't 
bearing guilt on me. Okay. It's all self-seeking. Okay. Yeah. Other thoughts, by the way, this might be appealing. If we think about <clears throat> the sacrifice of Christ, um, and that being the greatest sign of grace of God ever, mm-hmm. <laughs> it just renders it almost an enemy because I mean, that that is given immense grace to us, and that was immensely graceful. Mm-hmm. So this this is just yeah basically looking at that as almost nothing because of why, why did they have that if okay. God's just going to save us all? Well, in fairness to them, they would say the means by which everyone is saved is through the death of Christ. Um, they might say that everyone is elect in Christ. So Christ paid for all of their sin. Does that make sense? So they're not saying that everyone is good enough to get to heaven. They're saying that everyone is redeemed, and Christ redeems everyone. Okay, Ashton, then Naomi. Okay. So is it saying that like everybody is going to get to heaven? Mm-hmm. That that is that is a belief. Everyone gets to heaven. Okay, Naomi. So um, I really, really, really love my friend Anna, mm-hmm. who doesn't know Jesus. Yeah. And um, I long for her mm-hmm. to experience eternal life with him. Sure. So this is very appealing. Yeah. Because I, I desire the, the eternal life mm-hmm. for my friend. Yeah. Yeah. Stop. <clears throat> Some sense in which um, it satisfies this belief that, you know, um, God, we want God to make things right, you know, in a sense. Mm-hmm. All the wrongs, we want him to make those things right. And so. Mm-hmm. For many, there's a view that if hell exists, mm-hmm. then you know God hasn't really won. Yeah, He didn't really mm-hmm. make all wrong things right. Like there's something yeah. wrong in the universe if there's a hell. Mm-hmm. And so there's a a reluctance to embrace mm-hmm. what Josh said that the fact of judgment. Mm-hmm. Like just have an aversion <coughs> to judgment in general. Yeah, so it's now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Eric. Since from the someone in uh, a position of authority or just a general Christian, it frees them from the responsibility of like, hey, these people need to know about Christ, or mm-hmm. we have to deal with church discipline because yeah. kind of we're all going to the same thing. So it's kind of just yeah. a, we don't need to do those hard things anymore because yeah. we're all going there. Yeah. I think it also. I think it also reminds us that there's a problem with the world. Like the, the fact, the reality of hell reminds us of the reality of sin. Mm-hmm. And at least in me, and I think in many others, there's, there's a tendency to not want to recognize when there's a problem. Mm-hmm. Like we like things to be kind of equilibrium. Yeah. So hell is a reminder of that. <coughs> yeah. I think hell suggests exclusivity that some people go there and some people don't, right? Which is one of the doctrines that can embarrass Christians, right? So you think you're better than me because I'm going to hell? Um, So yeah, this is a way of remedying it, right? Now, some people would push back, well, what about Jesus teaching about hell? I mean, clearly he taught about it, was Jesus lying? And so there's kind of a hybrid position that will contend that they take that Jesus' teaching on hell seriously. But they would say that hell only lasts for a little while. And this is where you get into what's called post-mortem evangelism. Okay, Robert Peterson in his excellent book, Hell on Trial. So this doesn't, te- it explains it, but doesn't advocate for it. Defines this position with the following. The church has erred in teaching that death is a cutoff point for grace and that everlasting punishment is the destiny of the unrepentant. On the contrary, one advocate assures us if God really loves the whole world and desires everyone to be saved, it follows logically that everyone must have access to salvation. Uh, Those who do not have sufficient access in this life will have it in the next. So, um, yeah, so here's the idea. So if you remember, Rob Bell uh, was a pretty prominent pastor in evangelical circles until maybe 10 or 12 years ago. And he came up with a with a a book called Love Wins. And he would teach that people go to hell, but hell will eventually be emptied. Um, 
Adam Hamilton, who's a well-known Methodist minister in the Kansas City area, suggests that people do go to hell, and, and he kind of does this whole balanced position thing that we have to take hell seriously. Jesus teaches about it. But he says just because people go there doesn't mean that people have to stay there. And so the idea is, as you are uh, enduring affliction, Jesus comes to you and offers you a way out, and who's going to tell Jesus no at that point in time? Does that make sense? So how does, why is this position attractive? Because even if you do make it to hell, then you still have a second chance. Yeah, you get a second chance, right? And the idea is that everyone will eventually take Jesus up on that second chance. Okay? So that's post-mortem <coughs> salvation. Okay? Now, what would be the problem with that? That doesn't matter what I do here on Earth. If I can still get that second chance while I'm down there. Okay. I might have to deal with an eternal torment for a short time. Yeah. it's not really eternal torment. Yeah. But Temporal torment. Yeah. Yeah. And then I just go to heaven after that. So. Okay. It doesn't matter what I do as long as I can get to heaven. Okay. It contradicts Hebrews chapter 9. It's mm. appointed that the man wants to die and then the judgment. Yeah. You die once and then there's judgment. They Apple. will not repent from their sins. And what was that? They will not repent. They'll from not their repent sins. for their sins. Well, and they don't have to in this life. They could just do it in the future, right? I think it ends up coming down to just how can I avoid a little bit of suffering? Like going to heaven, living a good life becomes mm-hmm. about I'm going to make it to heaven anyway, but I'd rather do so and not have pain for a bit. So mm-hmm. I guess I'll try to be good enough so that I don't have to go to hell for a while. Yeah, it's almost like a purgatory, right? This in-between state. Hell is not eternal. It's just something that lasts for a little while. Yeah. I think it's interesting that there's an assumption that all those who go to hell would then want to repent mm-hmm. at that point. And I don't know if that's true. Yeah. There's some other theological... Some interesting assumptions about what people want in terms of their sin and what they want in relationship with God. Yep. Their desires. Mm -hmm. Like, would they be in a state of mind where they would be willing to be... Is there regeneration in hell? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that'd have to be an an assumption you'd you'd make. Okay, any other thoughts on this one? Yes. What scripture are they using or twisting to get to that point? Mm -hmm. They might talk about how Jesus spoke to the spirits who are now in prison. From um, that's First Peter. Let me find it. And again, I'm not advocating for this, but it's good for you to know this. Um, is that First Peter? Yeah. Okay, here it is. Um, 1 Peter 3, 18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey God's patience uh, waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is a person who were being brought safely through water um so they look at that. The spirits that are now in prison are probably angels that violated um, the parameters that God gave them and had uh, sexual relations with women. And so he proclaimed this to the spirits now in prison. I don't think it's necessarily like he's sharing the gospel with them to get them out of prison. They're kind of rubbing it in their face, mm-hmm. right? It's a shout of triumph. You're doing sure. So that would be one. The other one is they would look at some of the... Uh, all passages in Romans chapter um, 5 like in 517 of Romans for if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of uh, righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ verse 18 therefore as one man led to condemnation for all men so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men so they would say all men are saved based off of that but Paul qualifies it throughout the book where he makes it very clear that not everyone is saved 
Do you know what I'm saying? He's just kind of just show, doing some general parallelism, parallelism uh, with that. So those would be the passages that they would point to. They would point to the love of God being the dominant attribute of God and that, you know, why would a loving God send people to hell forever? So, um, so then you kind of have another position that's a little bit closer called annihilationalism. Okay, and that's the belief that people might suffer in hell for a little while, but then they basically are out of existence. They consciously seek to exist. And one of the advocates uh, who supports this, they start off with this premise. He says, let me say at the outset that I consider the concept of hell as endless torment in the body and mind, an outrageous doctrine, a theological and moral enormity, a bad doctrine of the tradition which needs to be changed. How can Christians possibly project a deity of such cruelty and vindictiveness whose ways include everlasting torture upon his creatures, however sinful they may have been. Surely a God who would do such a thing is more nearly like Satan than like God, at least by any ordinary moral standards and by the gospel itself. Surely the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is no fiend. Torturing people without end is not what our God does. So as you can see, adherents to this point of view feel very strongly about defending the character of God. They contend that the idea of everlasting punishment makes God a monster. Thus, they believe that when the Bible speaks of destruction, it means just that, destruction. When the second resurrection transpires, unbelievers are judged and put out of existence forever. This view is taught by John Stott, John Wenham, Clark Pinnock, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Seventh-day Adventists. So what would be the appeal of this view? <clears throat> I think it's a similar one to post-mortem evangelism where instead of, I mean, getting a second chance and going to heaven, you mm -hmm. just disappear and become one with the universe. Um, well, not one with the universe. You just disappear. You don't become anything. Yeah, they don't. Just, mm -hmm. So, you know, I feel like a lot of people would view it in the same lens of, well, at least it's only a little while. Mm -hmm. And then there's just no existence and that, that's all that matters. Mm -hmm. Other thoughts about the appeal? <coughs> I mean, kind of in a sense, like trying to defend God's character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, uh, they're not suffering anymore because they don't exist anymore. Right? So the suffering is, is mitigated. It's only suffering for a little while. Then you're put out of your misery at that point in time. Right? So that is one view, and I, I would say I disagree with this view, but at least they have some remnant of judgment. Okay, so I wouldn't necessarily say that somebody who believes this view is a heretic in the sense of outside, like this view is somewhat compatible with evangelical Christianity. Does that make sense? I do not recommend it. I think it has some bad implications, but it's different from universalism. But I think if you were to look at a biblical view of, of hell, this is what it teaches, eternal conscious torment. Hell refers to the final abode of the damned, the lake of fire, to which all the guilty will be sentenced after they had been resurrected for, for the great white throne judgment. The Bible teaches that all who do not place their faith and trust in Christ during this lifetime will suffer God's wrath for eternity. And so... Here's some of the biblical teaching, and I think this will answer um, some of the objections to uh, eternal conscious torment as we do it. So let's, um, maybe we'll start with you, Malachi. Why don't you read Mark 9, 47 to 48. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. Okay. So a couple passages, clauses in there, make it very clear that it lasts forever. Worm does not die, fire is not quenched, right? Then you have another passage, and I think this is um, a very strong passage about the eternal duration of hell. You want to get that from me, Ben? Sure. Matthew, five, Matthew 25, 41. Mm-hmm. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. 
Okay, so note the term eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So, um, one issue with universalism is it would imply that even the devil gets saved. That even the devil is changed and transformed, right? Notice the fate shared by those who go to hell is also the fate shared by the devil and his angels, which would be the demons. Okay, and then one more passage that teaches eternality. You want to get that for me, Michael? These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Okay, so notice the two uses of the word eternal. Okay? It modifies eternal punishment and eternal life as the same word. And so it would be very difficult to say that one goes on forever and the other one does not go on forever. Does that make sense? So when you look at eternal conscious torment, this is probably the strongest verse uh, that talks about it. Okay, any questions about this? Okay. So secondly, hell is a place of torment. Okay, the authors of scripture use five major motifs to describe the everlasting abode of the damned. Number one would be darkness and separation. This speaks of eternal rejection of unbelievers by their maker and the total exclusion from his blessed presence. I'll just read this one. Uh, Matthew 8, 12. But for the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness, right? This is a banishment, right? Away from the presence of God. Like, away from me, I never knew you, right? This idea of banishment, pushed away from him. Um, then you have fire. Uh, fire signifies the horrible physical suffering which the unrighteous will endure in hell. Uh, Matthew 3:12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Right? There's a word unquenchable that goes on. <clears throat> of all the ways to, to die, being, right, being burned alive would be the worst, right? And that is the image that John the Baptist, in this case, uses to describe judgment. Uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth, hell is a place of endless remorse and unspeakable suffering. The damned will wail in agony and grind their teeth in bitterness. Uh, Matthew 13:50, and will throw them into the furnace of fire in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? And this is where we get conscious, right? As they're suffering, they are aware of their suffering and they're expressing their displeasure at the suffering. Punishment. Hell is a place of final retribution where the residents will reap the consequences of their sin. Matthew 25, 46. These will go away into eternal punishment, but for the righteous, into eternal life. Um, so again, eternal punishment. They'll always be punished for their sins. Then death and destruction. This speaks of eternal ruin to which the unrepentant will be condemned. They will be destroyed forever. Revelation 20, verses 14 through 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And then it will be inhabited. Hell is not merely a play, an idle threat or an abstract construct that Jesus manufactured to get us to behave. It's a real place and genuine possibility for those who do not repent. Thus, in a vision of the future, John describes the fate of the lost. Revelation 21.8. Before the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in a lake of, that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, I want to make a couple of um, uh, notes about all of this. So, all of these references of hell... Do you notice where they come from? What books? Matthew, Mark, in Luke 2, and then Revelation, right? Jesus talked about them. Jesus did, right? And when it's brought up in Revelation, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ, where Jesus Christ basically appears to John and shows him these visions. 
right? So the person who talks most about hell, Paul has a few spots here and there where he talks about wrath and stuff like that, but our theology of hell and what hell is like comes primarily from Jesus, uh, which is kind of stunning, isn't it? Like, I, I, when I talk to people about this, I'm like, you know who teaches on it, don't you? And you kind of show all these words coming from the mouth of Jesus. Why do you think Jesus talked about it so much? Some more of another consequence of your sin. Yeah? I think John of your sin. talks about it a little bit, how he... He's, his desire in his final prayer before for his disciples so that he can be one with them and them one in him mm-hmm. with the Father. And he would not want this for the people, but he knows it exists. Mm-hmm. And he knows it will come. And he knows yeah. that many will choose this. Yeah. I mean, he issues warnings, right? <clears throat> yeah. He knows this there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a question. Uh-huh. Um, what would you say to those who say that you don't find hell in the Old Testament? I would have a hard time. So if it's not in the Old Testament, it can't be in the New? I mean, there's a lot of things in the New Testament that are revelations. You see a lot of blood of judgment and wrath. You see the, you know, the person capable of inflicting that. Um, but New Testament revelation... Um, <coughs> can disclose and reveal new revelation. You do have concepts like judgment, banishment, punishment. Um, the place of the dead. place of the dead. But yeah, if, if you can't find hell in the Old Testament, I don't see why that would shake your faith, well, your belief in it at all, especially given the amount of time that Jesus really focuses on it. Oh, and, and I wonder, the reason I ask that is because I wonder if that may have been one of the reasons why Jesus put such an emphasis on it because it had not been a, a prominent theme mm-hmm. thus far in the revelation of God had given. Yeah, you don't find much about the afterlife in, heaven, in the Old Testament either. Mm-hmm. A couple of references to the resurrection, some allusions to, to that, but as far as the afterlife in general, that's um, the New Testament places a greater emphasis on it. With Psalm 23, with David, alludes to the heaven and the house of God. Yeah, being in the presence of God, but that can often mean just being in the presence of God in his temple. Sure. Right. So there was a hope of the resurrection, but the Sadducees didn't even believe in, they really didn't believe in a resurrection or an afterlife. And so if you talk to a lot of Jews today, some of them believe in an afterlife and others just don't even think about it. But Jesus definitely brought it to the forefront. Got it. So when he talks about a worldwide kingdom and bringing this kingdom to earth, um, you know, what do you do with those people who don't want to be a part of it? And it's basically banishment from the, you know, from his realm. Okay. Yeah. I think there's there, there could be an essence in that, you know, hell helps to clarify and the severity and the evil of sin mm-hmm. in a way that. Um, hell only seems we only have a problem with hell because it seems excessive compared to mm-hmm. our view of like, mm-hmm. a right punishment of sin uh-huh. and so it, you know Jesus is he's seeking to have people turn away from their sin and, and in a sense explaining hell it helps to teach and clarify mm-hmm. how evil mm-hmm. sin truly is that mm-hmm. sin deserves and rightly rule have as this consequence yeah. this eternal conscious self. like this is how bad sin yeah. is and, and it's, you know um, I don't know when you mm-hmm. get a diagnosis from your doctor sometimes knowing what how serious it is mm-hmm. can help you understand mm-hmm. your need for treatment or cure or, yeah. you know and, and think about the Sermon on the Mount and how he clarified the degree to which sin really has it's deeper than you think. It's much deeper and much worse. Because mm-hmm. um, I think every time we, every time we struggle with hell, we struggle to reconcile. You know, is that is that the right amount of punishment? 
And if it is, mm -hmm. then sin is much worse than we. Yeah. 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 It kind of that kind of leads into. <clears throat> I'm going to go a little bit off script. Um, I think one of the major objections to hell is it doesn't seem fair, right? So you're telling me that if I were to sin just once, I deserve to be punished forever in hell. Right? For one momentary sin, there is an eternal punishment there. That just doesn't seem fair, right? And I think if you know you think about it for a while, that is a kind of a compelling objection. Yeah. I I think I mean foundationally nobody sins just once. That's mm -hmm. kind of already a problem with that is you uh -huh. can't you can't use that argument because it's just not true for anyone. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, um I think if the standard is perfection, mm -hmm. then anything below perfection is failure. Mm -hmm. And is failure which deserves punishment. Yeah. Um, and so if, and that's why we don't believe that it's about works. Mm -hmm. That's why we don't believe that if you sin just once, like you're going to hell and there's nothing that can be done about it. Like we believe that if you sin even just once, you deserve to go to hell. That doesn't mm -hmm. mean that you're going to go to hell. Yeah. It's why we believe in Jesus' death mm -hmm. as as our salvation. Mm -hmm. So I just think I, I think it completely ignores like really yeah. really, really basic elements of the Bible. So the premise of the argument is is skewed, right? But I think uh, I mean these would be and that's a that, and that's a good pushback on the premise, but even taking the premise for what it is. Um, I would have four arguments against it, right? This is my, my apologetic for eternal conscious torment, okay? Number one, the purpose of justice is to restore a sense of rightness, okay? So the purpose of justice is to restore a sense of rightness. So you look at um, yeah, the, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? The idea of that is it basically limits punishment. If, if you take out one of my teeth, I can only take out one of yours and no more. Right? If you damage one of my eyes, justice is to kind of bring that back up to level. Do you know what I'm saying? So justice is all about the debt you pay, I paid because of what you did, you need to pay to even the score. Now there are some um, sins and some sinners that earthly consequences fail to balance the scales of justice. For instance, how many people is Adolf Hitler responsible for killing? 16 million. Yeah, 16 million. I mean, a lot, right? Even systematically, yeah, they would not have done the final solution and the genocide of the Jews, apart from him signing off on it, right? And do you guys know how Adolf Hitler died? Suicide. Suicide. He got to take his own life on his own terms. So here you have, like, his, is his punishment, self-inflicted punishment on one side, six million Jews dying on the other side. That, that doesn't seem to even the scales of justice. Does that make sense? And so one of the doctrines, reasons why hell is um, often appealing, like after, let's say, 9-11, or the attacks uh, by Hamas on the Jews in Israel, is it just seems to even the scales of justice. That what justice is not accomplished in this life will be accomplished in the life to come. Okay, so that'd be one of my first premises. Two. The one sinned against determines the severity of the punishment, okay? So the one sinned against determines the severity of the punishment. Now this is, this will make you uncomfortable, but follow my logic here. If you were to take a little grasshopper and pull off the legs, right? You would think, okay, well maybe he's fishing. If I were to grab a frog and pull off the legs, you would start to wonder about me. Frog legs? 
Maybe he likes frog legs, right? If I were to grab a bunny, right? Now you're gato, right? And what if I were to grab a baby? Now, it's the same action pulling off legs, right? But the value of the victim determines the severity of the offense. Does that make sense? So me sinning against Malachi would be one thing, right? Sinning against, let's say, a six-month-old would be another thing. Sinning against the God of the universe would be quite another thing. Does that make sense? So the value of the victim determines the severity of the crime. Yeah? So then, I'm just making sure, like, you're not saying it's going to be like a Dante's Inferno type of thing, right? No, I'm not. Okay, great. I do think that people have different experiences mm -hmm. in hell when they're there, not in the regimented way that he described it. Gotcha, okay, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> okay. okay? But one of the reasons why we go to hell is because it's crimes against two, crimes against God. Mm -hmm. And given who he is and what he's done, a crime against God is of infinite offense because of who he's of infinite worth. Okay? So thirdly, we will not know the depths of our sin until final judgment. Right? We won't know the depths of our sin until um, final judgment. Like how many people do you think Hitler would have killed if he had a chance? You think it would have just stopped at 6 million Jews? He would have done it all, right? Uh, sometimes our sinful desire is held in check by external factors. God knows how far it would have gone had you not been held in check. Okay, so we won't know the depths of our sin until final judgment. It is way worse than anyone can imagine. And then I think this is... Um, the strongest um, argument for eternal conscious torment. Sin against God changes us and alters our relationship with him forever. Okay, so when we sin, our relationship with God is adversarial. How popular will God be in hell? If Jesus were to show up in hell, what would the residents of hell do? What would they do? Flock to him. Say that? Flock to him. Do you think they'd flock to him? To do what? See if they could be saved. I think they'd hate him. I think they'd hate him. Right? There's weeping and gnashing of teeth because um, they would crucify him all over again. Does that make sense? So when someone has all of common grace stripped away, they're sinful. They're fully handed over to their sinful disposition. If they were to see Jesus, they'd want to crucify him all over again. And get this: people in hell, do they still sin? They keep on sinning forever, right? And they keep on being punished forever. And they weep and they gnash. There's anger, and I think the anger would be directed towards towards God. See, because people can't believe without the intervention of the Holy Spirit, right? <laughs> people in hell, if they see Jesus, they try to crucify him all over again. Yeah, that's the depths of sin. Any good that we see in humanity right now is because of common grace. All that's stripped away once they're in hell. Okay, any questions about that? Yeah, Joshua? It's not a question. I still say it. Okay, you can still say it. <laughs> I think uh, in his present life, in Romans 1, mm -hmm. the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and, and unrighteousness. Mm -hmm. And one of the key ways in Romans 1 that he reveals his wrath in this life is he turns people over to do what they want to do. So that three times. He gives them over to themselves. And that's actually an act of uh -huh. his wrath, of yeah. judgment. Uh -huh. And I think there's, I can, see, there's a certain sense in, in, the, in, in hell, mm -hmm. the forever, but there's an act of judgment. We see that in this life as well at times. There's also mm -hmm. a sense where his wrath can be revealed in eternity, and he turns people over to the path that they choose. Yeah. So if you, if God's the source of life and goodness mm -hmm. and joy and all the rest, yeah. and you turn away from him, then mm -hmm. you live the consequences of that. So it's not just passive. I'm not saying there's no active sure. judgment. But yeah. it does indicate that his wrath is also manifested by turning us over to do what we desire. So in hell, mm -hmm. you get all that you ever wanted and yeah. more. Yeah. 
and you're cursed for it. Yeah, but yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's there is that element of banishment, you know, from His presence, from His grace, from His goodness, and all the benefits um, that you find there. So, you got other thoughts about that? Yeah. I'm so you said that like they would keep on sinning forever. Like, mm-hmm. what does that look like though? Like, if they're like eternally being punished for like what they did, like mm-hmm. while on Earth, like. I don't know. Yeah, it's sin against an infinite God, infinitely good God. That is enough to merit it. But they keep on sinning over and over and over again. So there's like more fuel for the punishment. Um, fires, so to speak. Okay. Yeah, so they're conscious, and they're consciously sinning the whole time. Okay. Yeah, and, they're, and that's part of the ugliness, like what Joshua talked about, being handed over to your sin, right? They're handed over to their sin, their anger, all that stuff. I think there is that part of it, which is hellish. And that's not to say that you know people create their own hell on earth when they you know, live in bitterness. I mean, there is external and internal um, yeah, affliction that goes on there. Yeah. Would a, a similar comparison logically be um, people talking about like it's unfair to judge all of humanity based on Adam's sin? But then we would have all sinned in Adam's place. Okay. Is that like would that be a, like the same thing, or is I'm not like, sure if I understand your question. So, we're saying that people are arguing that it's unfair to judge based off of one sin. Mm-hmm. But people in hell will continue to actively sin anyways. Mm-hmm. Like their their sin isn't doesn't just end. Mm-hmm. They're not, yeah. They wouldn't give up if they could. They yeah. would still sin, even in hell. Even when they, like, yeah. If they had the choice, they'd still continue to sin, and they yeah. will continue to sin. Yeah. And in that same way, if we were to say it's unfair to judge all of humanity as born of sinful nature because mm-hmm. of Adam's sin, but if we were in that position, all of us would have sinned as well? I understood the first part. Okay. I'm having trouble maybe, with the swing Maybe to the like we can part. sit down some time and Okay, maybe we can do that. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's not to say I'm not saying that it is a bad question. I just I'm not quite sure. And if I, I can. formulate things really confusingly a lot of the okay. time. So All right. That's super so I think Tanner had something then gave. They well, I was just say, I, just to clarify, I think when we when when we talk about we continue to sin and tell, mm-hmm. we defer, we don't mean people are still going getting drunk on the weekends and sleeping around and partying. Like that's not what we mean by people are still sinning in hell. Yeah. Um, people aren't having a good time sinning in hell, but there is still that presence of sin, whatever that might look like. Yeah, so. bitterness, anger, yeah. rage, like yeah. a lot of those those sins really done in isolation from God and from each other. Yeah. yeah. So there's no common grace. Like there's no euphoria from doing cocaine in hell. Right? <sighs> Let's all hang over. Gabe, then. No, sorry, uh, that's not what I was reacting to. You got to me what I was going to ask if on Galatians 5.22, if the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. If you're eternally separated from God, you're eternally separated from the Holy Spirit, therefore those things would not exist. There. Yeah. Right? Yeah, out of control. Got it. Right. Okay. Corey? That's what I was. Mm-hmm. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. I was not meaning to. Yeah, there'd be isolation. Well. Like it's Spanish. And I don't know much part of the sentence. All of them. Thank you for not being Yeah, I think, you know, she's asking about isolation. I think we're isolated from God and possibly from each other. And then interaction, if we were to hypothetically have interaction with others in hell, would not be a pleasant one. Um, Yeah, so you look at this idea of common grace. And even people who are suffering immensely still experience some forms of goodness, right? Like, get a headache, you can take an Advil or Tylenol, and it diminishes it. Uh, If you get a sunburn, you can soothe yourself with aloe. all of that stuff is gone. Like there's, like they talk about how misery loves company, right? Like when you're sad, sometimes common grace is God brings a friend. Um, all of those comforts are stripped away. There is nothing. 
comforting at all. So if there is interaction, it won't be a misery loves company interaction. Um, it would be of its first kind. Think Lord of the Flies. Well, yeah, I didn't know just like this. Because our self-image that to be selfish yeah. to dominate, and so I didn't know if they would yeah. continue to yeah. do that. And yeah. Power over each other. Mm -hmm. All all in evil and ugliness, but yeah. to continue to engage in those yeah. things. I'm bitter and I'm angry, so I'm yeah. hurt. Yeah, and there's a sense where part of hell is God's active punishment, part of it is his passive punishment, where we become the worst versions of ourselves. I mean, everything good is stripped away. Um, so it is kind of a frightening reality the more you think about it. But, I mean, Jesus warns us, right, of, of the wrath to come. Um, and, yeah, this is kind of the biblical assessment. I'll just read this to you. Clearly, the uncomfortable doctrine of eternal conscious punishment for sin is what scriptures teach. The scriptures teach. To deny it is irresponsible as a doctor ignoring clear signs of the sibient cancer in his patients. We must face the sober reality of the biblical teaching and warn people accordingly. So hell is a frightening place which rightfully disturbs many people. The violent description of the abode of the damned has lasting implications on how we minister, view the Lord, and appreciate Christ's work on the cross. The doctrine of everlasting punishment should give us an urgency and zeal in our appeal to the unrepentant. The fires of hell ought to generate a profound fear of the Lord and disdain for sin as the ferocity of his wrath reveals the intensity of his hatred towards sin, for sin. And finally, we should bow in humble adoration at the work of Christ. 2,000 years ago, he underwent the ferociousness of God's wrath, the same wrath which will be poured out in hell on our behalf. Uh, truly, God has been gracious in rescuing us from what we rightfully deserve. May the study cause us to tremble at the word of the Lord and zealous proclaim the hope of salvation to the lost. So that's one thing. I mean, when you understand hell, I mean, part of it should be praise, right? Like the wrath of God was poured out on, on Jesus in our place. And Jesus does more than just warn us of the wrath to come. He gives us a way out. And part of hell, um, I think, is to start us on the journey, right? I better get out. I better deal with this sin. Um, no comfort that sin might give is worth, you know, an eternity of wrath, right? So that's kind of the sobering uh, reality. Now in, uh, I guess, 20, 30 minutes, we're going to have some baptisms coming up, you know, people who have been rescued from that. And, uh, and I would just encourage some of you, I mean, don't take this lightly. I mean, if you're concerned that you might be going here, it might be worth asking some questions, talking to people about it, and... Um, or if there's some sin that kind of has a grip on you, just, you know what, you know, I don't, I don't want to have this have a grip on me anymore. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, hell puts a lot of things in focus and helps you see the world, your sin, and all that with a very clear lens. So I know this was kind of a downer of a topic, but God had you in the Sunday school class for a reason, right? So let's pray. Father, we come before you grateful for uh, the clear teaching on hell. And while we find no comfort in it, we are comforted by the fact that your son um, endured, endured the wrath of God to deliver us from this judgment. And I pray that we will be zealous to warn others of the judgment to come as well, that we will live faithfully uh, with an eye towards this awful reality and an eye towards people who are facing this reality and that we'll seek to warn them of the wrath to come and that they might be rescued. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.